here we go. All right, Keith, welcome back to Dream Talking. It's great to be back, Nick. You, you, I'm looking you, forward to this conversation as I have to all of our conversations. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, I, I couldn't look forward to it more. I'm so juiced right now. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Unknowingly to you at the time, you were there at the, unknowing to you or to Bly, were there at the beginning of the modern men's movement. <laughs> so yes. how yeah. did that happen? Well, uh, you know, depending on the age and f reference point of anyone listening to this, you know, what is the men's movement? Um, I'd be like trying to say, what is the women's movement? And there is no single women's movement. There are many branches, many foci, uh, and, and there's a lot of argumentation among feminists about what it is. Um, so, so to answer what, I don't think there is a, a single men's movement, but uh, I, I, I will say I somehow got in on, on the ground floor and not intending to, and it was not my goal. Um, but so here's the story. Um, more than more than two decades ago, um, I live in I live in Northern California, and I was living in Northern California at the time. Um, uh, at that time in my life, uh, twenty some years ago, twenty some years younger, I was intensely interested in uh, sort of the inner life, uh, what spirituality, uh, artistic endeavor. What is the inner the inner world? And um, I'd begun reading great poets whose work I admired, and was dabbling in Eastern religions, and you know just that whole set of interests that go with the recognition of interiority, or you, the, the the inner world. So one focus of that became again living in the in in north of San Francisco at the time. There was at the time a fairly well known speaker, uh, Robert Bly an American-born, still living, he's in his 90s now, American-born, uh, Minnesota-born, farm boy. Uh, uh, I would say that the term doesn't get used much, and when it does, it gets uh, overused and misused. He is an authentic visionary. Um, and his focus for that outlet, for the outlet for his visionary nature was, is poetry. He's a uh, foremost American poet, also an essayist, also a student of fairy tales and mythologies around the world. If, 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 if listeners know who Joseph Campbell was, then Robert Bly would be in the sort of the same pantheon. Yeah, I would say most of my listeners are familiar with, with uh, Joseph Campbell. I bring him up just about every, every podcast. And uh, yeah, Bly is, is such a cool take on the... the study of the mythic. Exactly, exactly. So uh, where our paths cross, there is a Jung Institute, C.G. Jung Institute, J-U-N-G, devoted to the work of Carl Jung in San Francisco. And they, at the time, had a very robust lecture series uh, with leading, leading presenters in the Jungian world and mythology and fairy tales. And Bly became a regular fixture. Um, three or four times a year, he would come to California, but he would travel to other places too. He's about six foot two, uh, imposing physical stature, big guy, uh, unruly white hair. Um, he is a, wears a signature vest over a white shirt um, and a fluffy tie of some kind and uh, usually wingtip shoes of all things. Um, okay. And uh, he, he has a voice 
that's nasal like this. And when he speaks, his voice rises and falls. Do you hear the tones I'm suggesting? Do you feel this? And that, that's actually how Bly would interact with his audience. He, he would give presentations on, um, in addition to being a great poet himself, he would give presentations on the poets he had translated, like Pablo Neruda, uh, Reiner Maria Rilke, the great romantic and spiritual sacred poets, poets who went to dark places with very little language and evoked powerful things. So he would come to, so he was coming to California frequently and he was well known for talking about mythologies and fairy tales related to the goddess, to the return of the goddess imagery in our, you know, uh, many would say male dominated society. Um, there's this underground stream of interest in the goddess figures, the feminine figures from mythology and um, archetypes. So he was very early in on that. Um, so he would ha he has a dulcimer and he would perform and speak poetically and his arms would move and he was he had a capacity to transfix an audience but not just in his performing he is a brilliant intellect. Um, he graduated from Harvard that doesn't in itself mean much but he's a first-rate intellect and uh, he again is a visionary. He he uh, has a deep, um, you know, I never really talk with him about his inner life, but um, some kind of calling to bring forth the kinds of material that William Blake brought forth. Um, other visionary poets of other times. So, you know, you, it's unusual to get to live in, in the time of someone like that and, that and to meet them. So I would go to his, his talks. And his even, an evening with Robert Bly on the poetry of Rilke or the poetry of Neuter. There's a poem of Rilke's that I long ago memorized, and I'd like to do kind of an impression of Robert Bly doing it. Please, I gotta, before you do this, I got to say, I've been listening to him all morning on YouTube, and he's, he is the true triple threat of amazing performer and very super intellectually intelligent and a visionary, as you're saying. He has something to say. Not only can he put on a great performance, but he has a very deep thing he's reaching for. Um, so... Uh, having listened to him all, all morning, you do one hell of an impression. <laughs> well, that's that, and I've spent time with him, which we'll yeah, be discussing. Too. It's nasal, uh, it's Norwegian, it's Minnesotan, um, and he would um, he would often interrupt himself after a couple of lines of poetry and ask the audience, "Did you hear that? Do you feel where that's going? Do you feel what he wants you to understand when he says that?" Totally. And then he repeat the lines again. So yeah. here's a poem uh, that is many people are familiar with. It's called, I, I Live My Life in Growing Orbits. <clears throat> so he, he would begin with the, the dulcimer. Sort of setting, you know, doing the, the setting of the tone. And by the way, this is in a room with, it's amplified, but the tone of the dulcimer, which I've not done well, but a certain kind of steady, rhythmic, and it sets the stage. You know, you, you, really, you really want to put Bly in the category of Rumi yes. and Kabir. Those poems which we have written down, those were originally performed. Mm, yeah, great they point. weren't, you know, the printing press had not been invented yet, mm -hmm. uh, unless my history is off. But the point is, you didn't buy a book of Rumi in Rumi's yeah. era. Yeah. He spoke. So Bly, so Bly speaks. By the way, he's got many, many anthologies of poetry. So, so this particular poem. I live my life in growing orbits that move out over the things of the world. 
then he might pause and say, so do you see him right away? There's some sense of spaciousness and opening and, and this, whatever comments he'd make would be in the context of some theme he's developing. And so this poem didn't come out of nowhere. I live my life in growing orbits that move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I will never achieve the last, but that will be my attempt. I am circling around God, around the ancient tower, and I have been circling for a thousand years. And I still do not know whether I am a falcon, a storm, or a great song. Then the room would just fall silent and he'd strum the dulcimer a few more times. So you have a sense that there's nothing to say now? It's <laughs> what he would say to the audience. And this would just be one of many poems to present. And then he'd say, so, and he would tell part of the story of Rilke's history as a poet and his sufferings from depression, which Bly was a great believer in going that the direction that art, that art takes us is down yes. into soul, not the theological sense of soul, yeah. a soul, but soulfulness. More, more Jungian, also, would you say? Pardon me? Uh, like more a uh, Jungian soul, like the depths, the shadow. Exactly. Like that, yeah. Soul as a depth movement, exactly, into Hades. And mm -hmm. also he's a spirit poet. Bly has a lot of spirit poetry, mm -hmm. um, elevated upward. But he would often talk about how the upward movement is a very American movement. Mm -hmm. We love to elevate. We love to surpass the limits. We love to triumph over adversity. So... Uh, Anyway, so long story short, uh, I'm around Bly, giving you kind of an intro to Bly. Yeah. Um, I, in one of his evenings, and more than one, he, he would present an evening on men, fairy tales for men. And he would lead into these evenings by saying, um, you know, you know that I have been, I'm not going to do his voice all night long, but I, I've, uh, he says, I, for the longest time, told poems and stories and fairy tales about uh, the goddess from the Greek gods, the goddesses and so forth. And, and, but in recent times, I've been finding myself teaching. There's something moving in a new way in my work. And I have been focusing on men. And I've been traveling. And as I, as I teach around the country with young men, I, uh, I find something is going on with the male psyche. And if I could, um, let, let me just read something that he and that he described as to set set a better context for uh what i just said yes. this is bly talking actually to me in an interview that i conducted with him mm -hmm. later on little teaser there <laughs> so this is robert bly saying recently i taught a conference for men only at the llama community in new mexico the conference center about 40 men came and we were together 10 days each morning I talked about certain fairy tales related to men's growth and about the Greek gods that embody what the Greeks considered different kinds of male energy. And by the way, Bly had for several years, maybe a decade or longer, taught about different goddesses as representing different forms of female energy. So he's very open to a kind of a, a, a wide range of personifications to represent the human psyche. And he began to focus on what the goddesses tell us about the many modes of the female psyche. And now he was focusing on the Greek gods and the male psyche. He said, we spent the afternoons being quiet or walking and doing body movement or dance. And then we'd all come together in the late afternoon. 
Often the younger males would begin to talk and within five minutes they would be weeping. He met men in his young males in their 20s. The amount of grief and anguish in the younger males was astounding. The river was deep. Part of the grief was a remoteness, remoteness, remoteness from their fathers, which they felt keenly. But part two came from trouble in their marriages or relationships. They had learned to be receptive, but it wasn't enough to carry their marriages or relationships. In every relationship, something fierce is needed once in a while. Both the man and the woman need to have it. At the point when it was needed, often the young men didn't have it. He, a young man didn't have it. He was nurturing. He developed the capacity, capacity to be nurturing. But some, something else was required uh, for his relationship and for his life. The male was able to say, I can, to his woman especially, I can feel your pain. And I consider your life as important as mine. And I will take care of you and comfort you. I'll be there for you. That wonderful, you know, empathic skill that our fathers often didn't have. Yeah. Or our grandfathers didn't have. But he could not say what he wanted for himself and stick by it. That was a different matter. So when Bly would, would so he talked with me about that later. And I'll explain how that came to be came to San Francisco and gave these kind of talks. And he would describe how he was finding men all over the country. There was something unfinished. So I wrote Robert Bly a letter at his home in Moose Lake, Minnesota. Uh, I was, uh, again, I was an aspiring writer. This is actually one of my first big projects. And I said, dear Robert Bly, you don't know me. I've been to your events. I might've said hello to you. We might've shook it, shaken hands. Uh, I notice you really are shifting your work now to talk about men. And it speaks to me in some way I don't fully understand. So what I'd like to propose is I do an interview with you for one of the monthly sort of inner development magazines. Um, I've spoken briefly already with New Age Magazine, which was a big 60s, 70s, 80s monthly, uh, you know, look at the inner spiritual domain, psychological, covered psychology, spirituality, mythology, you know, the whole, it's now now defunct, as I think the new age is sort of. I was going to say, I think new age has kind of become a, almost a cartoon caricature of what it, maybe the intention was back then. Exactly. Yeah. There was really some literal idea that a new age was kicking in and that yes. we would have this kind of a new renaissance. And it really was language for the ancient perennial quest. There. Uh, in our time in the late 20th century. And so anyway, um, he writes me back and said, Dear Keith Thompson, um, I, I'm captivated by your idea. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we do that? I'm coming back to San Francisco for something soon. I'll be staying at such and such bed and breakfast. You could come by and bring your tape recorder and we could talk and uh, we may waste our time totally. And uh, we'll get to know each other and have a nice afternoon, or maybe we'll get something that could be useful. You know, I really love that, by the way. Love it too. I mean, yes. I didn't hear from his agent. There's no agent. He wrote me on a personal stationery with a very, like four by six, you know, four four by six inches, like a personal, with a letterhead, uh, with very simple typography, and he hand wrote it, That's with so cool. just you know, very kind of crimped writing. Maybe he typed it, I don't recall, but it was typed on a typewriter. In mm -hmm. any case, we stayed in, he gave me his phone number, I stayed in touch, 
And sure enough, he came out. And I did meet with him at the Red Victorian Bed and Breakfast in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco, long after the Haight-Ashbury uh, era was over. But it still was legendary. And I re still remember parking my car, going up to his room, and there he was in the same vest that, or one of many vests that he often wore. He was a little awkward. He didn't know me. We weren't buddies. He wasn't, he's a Minnesotan, you know, sort of like Garrison Keeler of a Prairie Home Companion. Yeah. Not easy. Bly's countenance is not easy, okay? Mm -hmm. Psychologically deep, but um, he doesn't set out to make you feel at home. Yeah, he's got a hard edge to him. Yeah, he's got a hard edge and he's here to make himself whatever, just, and he's, he's a, he can be abrupt and kind of gruff. And, and he's got so something he, to say that, you know, he wants you to hear. So we shook hands and he said, and so we chatted and he said, well, so what do you do, Keith, when you're not doing this? And uh, what is, uh, so anyway, I sat down with him, turned on a little Radio Shack cassette tape recorder, made sure it was working. And I asked him something like, well, I, I conducted an interview with him that uh, turned out to be pretty verbatim the way it turned out. Wow. And I asked him, in, so I'll keep it brief as I summarize it. I asked him, you know, you, you've been talking about men lately and you're, you're giving voice to something that seems to be, you, you seem to be saying that the women's movement has been good not only for women, but for men. And that it's opened men up to their inner lives, their receptive side but it's not finished, right? Is that what you're saying? And there's something, and there's a hunger, and there's a longing, and there's grief. And that's why I wanted to sit down. So what are you finding? What's going on with men these days? And his response, which was right in the interview that got published, he says, no one knows. That's a great answer. Yes. It's a great, it's like a Verona, like a cape, in one sense, like a bullfighter with the red cape, you know? Uh, yeah. So I'm saying, give me the answer. Give me, give me the dope. No one knows. Like Aikido, kind of, yes. <laughs> like Aikido, like some kind of, and then he says, but we could say perhaps a couple of things. And that's actually a very interesting style of speaking Bly has. We could say, or it could be suggested that what's going on could be something that is like this. So it's conditional, it's open-ended, but it's stating what he thinks is going on. But it isn't that, it isn't that uh, very simple. What's clear to me as an observer yes. is that we've reached a time when, you know, that kind of definitive, somewhat argumentative style. And a certain amount of minds are gonna close right away when they hear that style, right? They're gonna go, oh, you're full of shit, you know? That's right, because yes. every declaration uh, inspires a counter response is, no, it isn't. Yeah. Red is blue, no, it's not. Red is red, <laughs> blue yeah. is green, no, it's not. Or blue is blue. No, it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Today is Wednesday. No, it's not. So um, what he began to describe was um, th this, this terrain he was discovering. And then he turned to me and he said, I'm working on a book called Fairy Tales for Men. I don't know if it will ever see the light of day, but there's one fairy tale that I'm looking at. It's called Iron John. Are you familiar with it? And I said, no. He said, well, I think it's a pretty good parable for what's going on with men. And uh, so let me tell it to you. Please. So here's a guy who makes his living, among other things, you know, is a professional rock contour, storyteller, fairy tale. When I say fairy tales, you know, he's not just a guy who stands up at a children. He doesn't go to children's parties and read fairy tales. These are fairy tales for adults. The understanding being 
uh, in the tradition of Jung that the fairy tales are one of the oldest surviving extant, so to speak, the existing bodies of a kind of folk literature that speak to psychology, speak to human, to the soul, to the psyche before people like Freud came along in the 19th century with their scientific theories about all of them. So uh, he was a revisitor of the fairy tale tradition. And, you know, if he would tell Hansel and Gretel, uh, he would tell it as a deep story about some aspect of, uh, from a Jungian depth perspective. So with that in mind, this is a guy who would tell fairy stories with a dulcimer. I don't know if he brought his dulcimer out uh, in that interview and in, in his, uh, hotel room in uh, San Francisco, but I, he did sort of sit back and he actually told me the fairy tale. Once upon a time, in the time before all time, a long time ago, which is always now. And that was one of his frequent yeah. inductions, his invo, fairy fairies, well, storytellers in general, that yeah. once upon a time, in times long ago, which are these times today, it's that way of sort of saying Beautiful this happened a very, very long time ago uh, in a way that is still happening now, because that's the premise. Yeah. So he began and I'm going, okay. <laughs> and he told the story. Now, flash forward, uh, again, I don't know how, which of your listeners know what, but the, the, let me just, the interview was published. It was a cover story in New Age magazine called What Men Really Want. A fairy, a, an interview with Robert Bly. It became by Keith Thompson. That was the least important because I was not well known. Uh, it became a, you know, often to, an underground hit. Underground. I don't know what that exactly means, but the magazine uh, counterculture sold, hit, maybe you could say cross culture, yeah. a, a, a big hit. Yeah. The magazine sold out. I immediately <laughs> got requests as the copyright holder. Could we republish this in this magazine in that magazine? Wow. And it, it actually ended up becoming published in uh, anthologies, published by PhD academicians on gender, because it was seen as a popular culture expression. It wasn't, cons it wasn't a scholarly, it was an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An interview with a young journalist, aspiring journalist, and a teller of fairy tales who was on to something. So, and the basic premise was men had made progress by opening to their inner side their receptive side and if something is missing some some depth some ability uh, some strength uh he defined in the interview a phenomenon he called the soft male he said the soft male is in many ways an improvement over their fathers uh, pre we could call it the 50s male the 1950s male the snowmobile male I love that phrase, snowmobile. To go out for the snow snowmobile ride, mm -hmm. and that's your exposure to nature. Go as fast as you can in a snowmobile over the uh, tundra. Yeah. Um, the the fifties male, the he you know the John Wayne male, stiff upper lip. Um, these are men who went to work in places, in factories, and offices, and children would grow up in a world dominated by women by their mothers, but they didn't really know what their father did. They didn't have contact. So Bly was identifying what he saw as some father hunger, some, some desire for initiation into what it really means to be a complete man and to be fully developed as a male. And by the way, he was saying, hats off to the women's movement. 
The women's movement has been doing this for 10 or 20 years. Women have been finding new pathways to fully express what it means to be a woman, unlike Betty Crocker and June uh, Cleaver. And the, the stories that 1950s TV, uh, uh, housewife is pretty much all housewife and mother. Well, the women's movement expanded all that. And Bly was talking about uh, there are men who've opened up to their inner side and yet are suffering and struggling because they can't quite take a stand for what they want. They, they're missing something. So the fairy tale Iron John is a story, and I'm not going to try to recount it here, yeah. um, that is a sort of a parable of tasks that a male must accomplish uh, in Bly's reading of the fairy tale to, to complete certain relationships, including with his mother. That's a big part of what that fairy tale is about. So the fairy tale, the, the, the interview became a huge, huge cause celeb. Um, Bly went on smartly to pitch it as a book. He wrote a book called Iron John, a fairy tale for men, which developed the same uh, ideas at book length and acknowledged me in the, in the um, acknowledgement saying, thank you for Keith, Keith Thompson for the interview he did, which provoked this and for his companionship during that period and so forth. So it became, that book was a bestseller and it led to a men's movement. Bly and other, other figures began to lead conferences with men, experiential conferences. Uh, they often would take place in nature, in the woods, residential workshops. Uh, there would be often be drumming. So they became easy to caricature. The men's <laughs> movement, men going into the woods to pound their drums and whine about their lost um, manhood. And uh, there was a sense among some female, uh, women critics especially, but not, not only, uh, feminist-oriented critics to say, oh, the men have lost their power, the patriarchy is crumbling, and they've lost their sense of purpose, which was not anything that Bly was talking about. Part of what told me Bly was on to some, by the way, I came from a feminist background, small f myself. I was very inspired by the women's movement in, the, uh, in college. The women's movement that at the time was about civil and legal equality, parity between men and women. It didn't propose that men and women were identical, that there were no differences that mattered. That was stage three or four feminism. And I definitely parted company from that at that time. But I love the feminist movement and I thought, I, I agreed with Bly that uh, small, the small left feminist movement at the time, uh, I was politically progressive, or I, I didn't call myself a progressive, but I was on the kind of small L left at the time. And it was, you know, it's like, I was, this wasn't the 60s, but it was the post 60s, 70s. And these ideas were very much up for grabs. So Bly was not disparaging the women's movement or saying that women had taken something that belonged to men. No, it's that in many ways, the, the men's response to the women's movement was very positive. And men still, however, had some work to do to define uh, paths forward for them as males. So um, then I, I, I um, we're doing this, uh, this is audio only, but long story short, after that interview was published, and Bly went on to become a sort of a short-term big, big shot, uh, uh, interviewed by Bill Moyers in the same sense that Joseph Campbell had been. And, and, and there was a growing men's movement. There were different kinds of men's movements. There, there was the father's rights 
men's movement, legal rights for men to have access to their own children because they want to, wanted to be in their children's lives in divorce. That in some sense was a wing of, of the blind men's movement, it was seen as anti-mother to some extent. Um, but the society, so the culture was resolving stuff between yeah. men and women across the board. Beautiful the, way of putting it. The blind men's movement, and I'll bring this to a close, the blind men's movement was was characterized as the, quote, mythopoetic men's movement. Myth mythology, poetry. It was uh, the, 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 the men's movement that Bly and other figures in his vein would appear at would typically involve someone convening the thing, you know, a weekend with Robert Bly, a weekend with Michael Mead, another leading mythologist. Um, a weekend with... Um, there were other leaders who published books on men and what it means to be a man and male initiation and fathers and sons uh, uh, came out of Bly's work in the, in the um, aftermath of Bly's work. So um, I was then approached by a publisher, uh, Jeremy Charcher Incorporated in Southern Cal. They had a series of, uh, of anthologies on specific topics. They already had a book in print called To Be a Woman, and it was edited by an editor who had brought together 20 or 30 contributions by different, uh, different writers um, in, in an anthology on the various ways we could imagine what it means to be a woman. And they came to me and said, you'd be the ideal guy, Keith, to do a companion to that called To Be a Man. So I took the assignment, signed the contract. I put together an anthology called To Be a Man in Search of the Deep Masculine. And I went to, uh, I'm just looking at the book line right now. I went to people like Robert Bly, who I already knew, uh, the psychologist James Hillman, the writer Sam Keane, the Jungian Robert Moore, the mythologist Michael Mead, Warren Farrell, the author on a lot of books on men and masculinity. Um, and then I got several people from the sort of classical Period. Ernest Hemingway, I mean, people long dead, Ernest Hemingway, Franz Kafka, William Butler Yeats, uh, the poet w Wendell Berry, um, the poet Rumi. And I went to publishers and said, could I have this piece and publish it in this anthology? Or I went to living people and I said, can I have your, would you want to write something original for me for this? Or would you, can I use this piece you write? So I put together a reader. I put together an anthology. And it's now out of print. It, uh, like many books, it has a short shelf life until it doesn't exist. But it's still a pretty good classic. It's called "To Be a Man in Search of the Deep Masculine." It's available uh, on, in, you know, in, on Amazon used book sections. I I, I, got, I ordered one last week, and I have it in hand. Uh, and it's in pretty damn good shape. It, it, I, if it's not brand new, it sure does look brand new to me. It was probably barely touched, and it's freaking awesome. Well, uh, I, it's. Um, and, and by the way, when a book is out of print, I can easily endorse it now without sounding self-serving because exactly. uh, it's sold, the, 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 the whatever profit is made is by the used bookseller. So I'm not making any money from it. So it was um, a defining period for me. Uh, and, and I'll close this part with one thing that I think accounted for the success. Not only was I going to somebody who was clearly touching on themes, I picked up on it. I picked up on his themes on his style, on his visionary, um, evocative, leave the room in stunned silence ability that Bly has. And I picked up, however, on something about the message was hitting the zeitgeist. It resonated with me. Uh, Obviously, after, yeah. 
first wave of feminist uh, stuff, a lot of men credit the women's movement with giving them freedom to open to their interiority. My father didn't have much pride of ownership about, quote, parenting. He was a dad. He did what dads do, take you to the games and play, you know, pitch. But now we have a generation of men who deeply are involved emotionally with with their inner lives, with raising their children. I know that you are very much that kind of a dad. And I have been as well. I have a son and I really wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a parent. I wanted to give my son, um, I wanted to pass, I felt a responsibility, partly after having done this work with Eli. Uh, then I became a father later. I, not saying I had a formula that I wanted to enact, but I, I wanted um, to embody being a father in a way that my dad had not been for me, not because he failed me, but because he, his sense was being a breadwinner yeah. and, um, and telling me to get tougher if I had any problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the limit of it. So, um, it, it, you know, so that, that's, a, that's kind of an introduction um, to, the, to the project. Oh, I, I didn't finish my thought. So one reason it worked was because not only had I identified a guy who should be an would be an interesting interview, I was a young guy. And I modeled, we, we unknowingly modeled the young seeker of knowledge coming to the wise man. Earth. Yeah. And there was even a photograph in the original magazine where Bly and I were, we were posing because, you know, the magazine said, you know, we want you to get some shots taken for the, for the, for the article. So we sat on the uh, steps of a, of a church and Bly turned to me to his left and put his, index finger out to me like rah, 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 rah. and I look back like yeah what's the deal and that picture just really captured the energy but it was playful it was mugging yeah and so I was the young guy uh, coming to the older guy to say what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be uh, what is manhood what what do men and there's one point in the interview where he said well you ask about these things Keith how are you doing how are you making yeah. your journey into what it means to be a male. So I won't go into that right now. I mean, you can bring it up if there's anything you want to talk about. But the fact that I, Bly and I uh, uh, recreated or we constellated the very dynamic we were inquiring into. Yes. The, how do older, how is transmission of knowledge made between older males and younger males? And one thing that he discusses in the interview and in the book, Iron John, is that there were once ceremonies of initiation, yes. rites of passage yes. in so-called primitive cultures. I preferred the term primal uh, cultures. Um, uh, instead of third world, I call them first world cultures. They were here. They're we have first. something to explain. Maybe we're third or fourth world. But <laughs> we got to call ourselves first world. Yeah. Because we were European and we had books and stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, the great cultures did have ceremonies of initiation. You became a man, not just by being born or by eating Wheaties, but by uh, being taught the lore of the culture, the traditions of the culture, how the, how the tribe was descended from the gods, things yeah. which were not true, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but were held as true. And were ceremony, and they were there were so a young man would receive knowledge, and he would pass it then down to his children. So, part of what Bly felt and and had come to study and realize that there's that's those ceremonies were were uh, were cut short by the industrial revolution. So we're looking at a long term change, and he believed in the in the uh, when when we when we did this work together that something was culminating. The women's movement had helped men get more in touch with their inner lives, yeah. 
uh, but had, had, had stopped short. And men were struggling with how to be a fully developed male. And Bly often talks using the language of the gods about different gods. He would talk about Zeus, Z-E-U-S, the Greek god. And that Zeus was a powerful, authoritative god, but not authoritarian. And what Bly felt the fairy tales is that we can find language and imagery that's sort of lost, that's fallen off the current radar screen for forms of male strength and fierceness and solidity and power that are not power tripping. See, a lot of men kind of come to see, oh, male power is the problem. Male power must always be patriarchal. Male power, in, because that's what the women's movement has told us, a male power is by definition dominating. So there was, a, and I picked up on a lot of that. And I said, yeah, I don't want to be that kind of male. Yeah. Well, so what Robert Bly essentially came along and dealt with, with you don't want to be that kind of male, good. What kind of male do you want to be? Because if you're totally lost in your inner side of the, what he called the soft male, only, then you will be living in a very small part of your, your world. So anyway, that's my introduction. Long-winded may it be. Wow, I freaking love it. So it's, and you told me this, this story last week over the phone, and I was so excited to share this with the listeners. And as, as you're telling the story again, I, it's a movie, man. I can see the movie in my mind. It, it taps into all the archetypes because as you're saying, you, 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 you touched on it. You're talking about this, um, this deep evolutionary biological archetypical drive in us for young men to look to older, wiser men that have been through it. They, they made the transition from childhood to manhood. They, they earned the respect of their community and of their tribe. You know, they brought home the bacon or, you know, in the past it was the, uh, the gazelles or the, the whatever, right. you know, and, and, and that's built into us. And so that's what Robert Bly was tapping into. And as you're giving this interview, it's a microcosm of that very, that very mythology playing out. The older, wiser male who, and in this kind of cool, more modern new age in the older sense of the word way, he, he doesn't have all the answers. So he's, he's evolved, he's been informed by the feminist movement. There's been so much progress, we can definitely call it progress, but he's saying something is missing, something was lost in there that needs to be found again and integrate, in, integrated, integrated into moving forward. And how, how do we take those, those primal archetypical drives inside of us and bring them into the modern era, the era of industrial revolution, and then you know moving forward at the time of the interview into uh, computers and technology and mass communication and all of that, and just it, it it plays out so cool in my imagination as you tell the story of just seeing the movie of you guys in on you know Haight Ashbury in San Francisco and um, and. Um, going through a microcosm of this thing that just exploded. Like you said, there was something in the zeitgeist, there was something bubbling, and there was probably untold amount of men that were just looking for some sort of clue. I know something's off, you know, but I don't know what it is. And, and that interview sparked that 
oh, they're getting at what it is that's off, that's inside of me, that speaks to me. So it's so personal in a lot of ways for I think what a lot of men were going through. And it's, it's very um, timeless in that, you know, as you were telling me, introducing Robert Bly to me, uh, again, I, I had peripherally heard of him as, as a child, but I'm hearing him with whole new ears now and seeing him with whole new eyes as a 30 year old man with children. Um, I freaking bawled when you said, uh, you know, that, that one of his, his main pointers was um, men have gotten really, really good at understanding and empathizing and feeling the pain of women. Because, you know, I, much like Robert Bly, uh, was way closer to my mom than any other male in, in my childhood. And I got really, really good at that you know, as I think probably a lot of people of my generation and even, you know, the generation before uh, got really freaking good at that. But we never were allowed to, encouraged, even thought of the fact of looking at our own deep wounds and our own deep feelings. And, and the fact that, um, that it all accumulated, you know, the, the, uh, all the, the tinder was there and then that interview in a way seems to be looking back on it was the spark that set fire to this very cool thing that like every movement uh, created a whole lot of good and a whole lot of bad, but sometimes, you know, you got to break some eggs if you want to make an omelet. Right. And, right. and yeah. And, and if, if it was never um, addressed, then, you know, it, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna blow up in, um, it could blow up in a million other ways. And I'm so and, and glad one, that it did the way it did. And, and part of Bly's, uh, I think, success in addressing this, because he's a real right brain guy, mm -hmm. uh, he works in images and he tells stories and then tells stories about stories. So uh, if he had just been a sociologist, if he graduated from the sociology department at Harvard rather than getting a BA in probably fine arts and didn't continue, and then he went back home and started writing poetry and against all odds that you could make a living writing poetry and but he expanded it to be a storyteller and get on the road and just you know uh, in any case his ability to tell stories is such that he really captured a lot of imagery in this interview and in the book for example describing how much of the 1960s was rebellion against authority and it was rebellion against a certain kind of male authority. Like he talked about how the students, when they would take over, the radical students would take over the president's office at Columbia University because of the alliances Columbia probably had with a dictatorship in Chile or something. And sure enough, the students would uh, go through the president of the university's papers after they take it and sure find out some evidence of corporate involvement between Columbia and so on and so forth. And so there was a wholesale, we've got to get rid of, we've got to bring the power structure down. And Bly was unusual in his, in his ability to say this correlates with the fact that well, he, so let me take a different, so with that radical sort of protester movement, suspicion of authority, then he brings in a separate argument that uh, from some psychologists who talk about the fact, uh, in particular, uh, a, a particular side German named Alexander Mischterlich, and he wrote a book called Society Without Fathers, I believe. And what the premise of that book is, when a, when a child, in particular, um, a young male, does not really know what his father does during the day. 
Namely, he goes to some place called an office. He goes to some place called a factory. When in centuries before, a young male would work on the land with the father, work in the shop with the father. Now, Bly took pains to say, I'm not romanticizing that era, but something changed in the Industrial Revolution when there was no longer that side-by-side -side relationship between the young males, the sons, and their fathers. <clears throat> so fathers went off to factories. Fathers went off to offices. Uh, he said, what does a father do if he takes his son into the office, or for that matter, his daughter? This is not exclusive to, to, you know, takes his child, but let's just keep it about fathers and sons because that's really what the focus was. His father takes his son to the office. His father's an insurance agent. So on a Saturday, the dad's got to go, and this is, you know, in, in our era right now, the dad's got to go into the office on Saturday. And, hey, you want to go to the office with me, Cub? Sure, dad. And because I don't really know what you do anyway, you do something called sell insurance. Well, come on, I'll show you. So the kid goes to the office and what's he see? He sees telephones, desks, chairs, fax machines, computers, kind of looks like stuff that's at home. And the kid finds out what well, dad spends time on the phone talking with people about something called insurance is a sterility to that mm -hmm. setting. Yeah. Whereas a boy knows what his mom does. Now, yeah. traditionally, traditionally, mm -hmm. mom was home. Yeah. She kept the house. She cleaned, she cooked. Now, again, I'm not extolling that. Women are now in the workplace just as men are. There are probably as many young men and young women, young sons and daughters who don't know what mom does at work yeah. because it's, it's formulaic work too. But lies dealing with, so with the absence of fathers after the Industrial Revolution, not just one decade, but two or three, a growing absence of the father as a psychological presence Alexander Mischerlich in this book, Society Without Fathers, says when a boy grows up not knowing what his father does, there's a vacuum. Yeah. And when there's a vacuum, a vacuum attracts alternative story. Yeah. So uh, fantasies, dad, I don't know what dad does. Maybe dad is doing something bad. I don't, he doesn't say what he does. Dad doesn't talk. When he comes home, he's silent for three or four more hours because dad is tired and maybe depressed because of the rote work dad does. So there's no emotional bond at any time. So how do we connect these two stories? These kids grow up to go to college and they end up taking over the president's office because the president of the, the, the campus must be a bad force too. Yeah, of course. So, it's a larger gestalt that was being worked out in this period. And the women's movement came along and said, there's an alternative to this. Get in touch with your inner life. Get in touch with your feminine side. Empower women. All of that was good. But men empowering women and getting in touch with their receptive side still didn't resolve. Are there healthy forms of authority that are not abusive of authority? Again, Richard Nixon was president. He was conducting an illegal war in Cambodia. Male authority seemed really corrupt. The Vietnam War was a huge waste. Johnson and Nixon were not good examples of what it means to be a male or a human being or leader. So a generation of males, according to Bly, were influenced by a sense that there's really sort of something wrong with traditional masculinity. And yeah, it was very one-sided. The snowmobile male, the 50s male, the emotionally shut off male, the solution seemed to be, no, get in touch with your feelings. That's important. But it didn't get in touch with the full story, <clears throat> as Bly said. There has to be 
some work that is done between men, just as women do work together. Mothers and daughters go off to workshops all the time these days. Take your daughter to work. Well, take your son to work too, but also fathers and sons need time together. Mothers and daughters need, fathers and daughters need time together too. So it's not singular, but there's a particular tribute, there's a particular river of life that is the father-son older male, younger male river that Robert Bly tapped into and that I tapped into by hearing him and going to some of his readings, being moved by him as a troubadour and storyteller and visionary shaman. Bly has a lot of shamanic energy. And so uh, I followed my calling, which was to seek him out. He wrote me a letter, said, yes, I'll be interviewed. I'd be glad to be interviewed by you. We had no idea. It was very intuitive. It was very uh, seat of the pants. Like I said, when he sat down with me, well, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll waste an afternoon. That's so true. it was free of a lot of. Profound. I love that. It, it, I, I resonate with that. That's what, um, and before I'd even heard that, that's how I approach this podcast a lot. You know, I, I'll tell people, you know, worst case, we have a good conversation and we throw the recording away, you know? And that's so cool that he had that, like, he had no intention to go out there and change the world and start a men's movement. He he just goes, oh, I like your predilections. You seem interesting. It would be fun to, the metaphor that you and I use and I overuse, do some jazz, do some verbal jazz together. Let's explore, you know, I have this to bring, you have that to bring, and maybe some cool third thing will come out of it and through the, the collaboration of it. And uh, so I just, just that alone, just his answer to, you know, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm open to it and uh, we'll see what happens. is so cool. And it's very much in the spirit of this, of dream talking, you know? And, and so if, exactly, I see it's, it's very similar because I've, I've done your, uh, done this before with you and you're right. It's the same approach. Agreement, we can just scrub this when we're done or we can, yeah. we can launch, hit that button and launch it out to whoever wants to hear. By the way, anybody who is hearing and sort of hearing me talk about stuff that is not accessible. If you do a web search, uh, Robert Bly interview Keith Thompson. Yes. Keith Thompson interview Robert Bly. You'll find it out there somewhere. I found it very easily, actually. And I, did, yeah. I saw the picture of you guys with him pointing his finger. Okay, <laughs> well, I didn't know, I didn't know with, it was out there. With your full head of hair, you, uh, yep. you're an attractive young man. <laughs> <laughs> that and, was awesome. Uh, and then the book is, as I say, it's available. And the interview is cut up into three sections in the book, sort of three segments. Um, and the book is, it's, again, it's, it's, I think it's a good reader, a good uh, primer, primer for uh, kind of an overall look. If I were, um, if I were giving, uh, it's the kind of thing if I were, if it were in print uh, and someone were graduating from college yeah. or going to college, I would give them this book edited yeah. by Keith Thompson or Robert Bly's book, Iron John. I mentioned mine because it has multiple perspectives. By the way, the argument, not the argument, the approach I took in my book, um, To Be a Man, subtitle, In Search of the Deep Masculine, uh, the idea is, oh, what is the deep masculine? Is there a particular mode that is the right mode, a deep, resonant mode? And so I tended to choose authors who did um, address that theme, that there are certain modes of male expression, uh, the book is a, uh, has sections like men and work, you know, men rethinking their relationship to work. How do you integrate work and family? I have a section on men and, and sexuality, men and the body. There's a lot of evidence that men over the generations have, you know, engaged in work 
hard, well, not evidence. I mean, men have taken jobs that are hard, demanding, and very often destructive yeah, of their own bodies. You yes. end up losing an arm or a leg in certain lines of work. Um, mm. It's you, you know, if you're the if you are as uh, Glenn Campbell sang, you if you're the lineman for the county, and you go out and you you deal with electrical stuff, as I know you know something about. Um, <laughs> that's hard work. It's dangerous work. Electricity and water and all of it. So anyway, uh, a section on men and work and the complexities of men and the body, men and their relationships with women was one of the sections of the book, because when the women's movement happened and women changed. Um, it evoked. I mean, there's no, there's a way in which what Bly's talking about with a men's movement or the men's movement or inquiry into what it means to be a man would never have happened without the women's movement. So contrary to the idea that Bly was trying to tell women to get back into the kitchen and which was absurd. I don't know how you'd get that reading out of this book. Um, although there was language in the fairy tale, see that the fairy tale, Iron John, Bly, Bly talked about some of the imagery in that fairy tale is uh, very, very rich. Um, there's a task, for example, that the boy needs to find a key to a cage uh -huh. that is in the middle of the town. And in the cage is a wild man, uh, a hairy beast who has been found living at the bottom of a lake. Wow, there's a set of images. Uh, the king has been sent, hunters have been going into the woods one by one and doing what hunters do. And one by one, they haven't been coming back out. So it was determined something's a little wrong in that end of the woods. So a hunter came to town. He had nothing new to do. He said, I'll go look. There's always somebody like this in the fairy tales, right? Yeah. An enterprising young guy. And so he went with his dog to the edge of a pond and there rose out of the pond a rusty, hairy arm that grabbed the dog and pulled the dog under the pond. Well, the hunter, according to Bly's telling of the tale, uh, he wasn't prepared to let this happen. He wanted his dog back. So he went back to town and got more men from the, from the kingdom and they all came with buckets and they bucketed out the pond. I just can't handle the symbology. There's so much. There's so stuff. much symbology. So what, what Bly did with that and what we talked about was said, what are the what are the what do these images mean, Keith Thompson? This is what we're trying to figure out. And I said, what do they mean, Robert Bly? And he said, I am suggest so what it turned out that when they emptied the pond, there was at the bottom of the pond a rusty haired, fully uh, it, hair from top of head to the bottom is a rusty hair, a wild man, it was not wild in terms of his, uh, was not a monster, but was taken in town and put in a cage and uh, held there to be held. You could behold the wild man now living in the commons. So there's, so there's a lot of language here that there's some work men must do in Bly's view to recover contact with this ancient abandoned part of the psyche the wild man represents so that the wild man can be brought into the community, the energies of the wild man, which could be potentially, which are connected with sexuality and Strength. feeling mm -hmm. and emotion. So it's very rich to use a fairy tale in this way. Yeah. And so the key about, about uh, the key about the key, yes. um, the, um, Wild man, so a young boy passed the wild man one day in the community inside the cage. And the wild man said, would you please let me out? 
Okay, didn't the ball roll into the cage and he got his ball? Oh, that's right. right. The yes, boy's yes. ball. We're going to do the whole story at this point. Thank you. Stupid. I forgot. <laughs> the boy had a ball. He was playing with his ball, you know, a golden ball. Mm -hmm. uh, and it rolled into the wild man's cage. And the boy said, hello, wild man. May I have the ball back? And he said, yes, if you let me out. And boy said, well, I can't do that. I'll get into trouble. I'll get in trouble with my mom and dad. So right away, we see what the stakes are. There's some work the boy has. His boy is struggling. He's got a conflict. I don't want to make my mom and dad mad. Well, Bly saw this as a developmental stage. A young man must, in some sense, turn away, move beyond the parental frame to do a certain task in life, to be your own man. Again, these are come, these are rather a long way to get there. But so the boy said, well, I don't, I, I'm not, I can't open this. Besides, I don't know where the key is. And the wild man says, I know where it is. I'll tell you. It's under your mother's pillow. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Now Bly turns to me and says, what does it mean that the, that the key is under the mother's pillow? He asked me. <laughs> and I said, well, it says something of the key to the key is that it's something to do with the mother's domain. The boy must take something that currently is held by the mother. He yes. said, exactly. Boy yeah. must be willing to take something, uh, to claim something, and he's got to break free from the mother, not because the mother did anything wrong, but because it's time for something new. And, and he would talk about the fact that, let's face it, most moms are not willing to say their boy is ready to grow up yet. Yeah. And even mothers who do fully support male development, it's hard not to cling at some point. Yeah. So anyway, it's dealing with a lot of psychological uh, tasks that, uh, that Bly said uh, are probably relevant to this story. And the boy uh, did uh, get the key, did get the key from the mother's pillow. And I don't know if the dog that went down in the lake was ever recovered. That's one part of the story that's ever been told. But in any case, the fairy tale held these images, which became a way to talk about the subject matter in a way that would not have happened if he were a sociologist from the University of Minnesota. Yeah, of course. Like you said, he's because so right-brained right in a way. It would have been all left-brained yeah. academic, and it would have been valid. There are mm -hmm. academicians who have a lot to say these days about gender, and um, some, some, someone could write a self-help book about the, uh, the tasks of becoming a yeah. Uh, a full male, but and, to link yeah. it to a fairy tale with those kind of provocative images of a wild man uh, underneath a lake. And, oh, by the way, the bucketing, Bly would talk about the bucketing process is something that man may be doing his entire life, bucketing yes. out the mm -hmm. water, the work of bucketing. And, and another thing that just came to me as you were saying it, he went to town to get help. So there's something about male camaraderie being willing to accept that maybe you can't get all the water out yourself. You, and there's you some tasks that you, the task is a collective task that it yes. requires other males, yeah. but you're on but the bucketing. So men, there might be a lifelong of bucketing out a lake and the bucketing, it would be metaphor for therapy, for inner work, yeah. for Shadow work. your craft. Yeah. If you're a woods woodworker, then it's bucketing is, uh, if you're an artist um, and you are lucky enough to work <clears throat> as an intern to Rembrandt, the bucketing work would be the first job you would do at Rembrandt Studio would you'd sweep the floor. That's you're an aspiring artist. You might have five years of sweeping the floor. That's the bucketing work. And then someday Rembrandt, which is often, which was done, Rembrandt would say, I need you to put the sunset. What? See, Rembrandt didn't just work alone. He had a team of, of uh, so the Rembrandt, Rembrandt was a corporation to some extent. And this wasn't unusual. So in any case, the bucketing work is learning a craft. Yeah. 
uh, or doing the inner work to become a full human being. And that means often shadow work. You do psychotherapy. No one goes to psychotherapy to develop their human potential. They may leave developing their human potential, but no one has a presenting symptom that gets them into therapy called, I need to develop more of my potential. It's my relationship with my wife or husband isn't working. I hate my job. I hate my life. And there is work to be done in that, which may lead to a greater sense of potential. But uh, bucketing work is not easy. And if you do work with a therapist or a spiritual teacher that's worth their salt, they're not going to reinforce your sense. Oh, you're just great the way you are. You yeah. know, you yeah. are great the way you are, and you could use a little work. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, so the, the the guy who keeps coming up in my mind, I'm surprised it actually took me this long to bring him up. Um, in so many ways, they are different, but in so many ways, my generation's Robert Bly has been Jordan Peterson. Um, yes. Yeah. And now Jordan Peterson, actually, he does work very much with uh, symbology. Um, and it's funny, he uses popular stuff like Harry Potter and, and Disney movies because it's in the popular culture. And, you know, who hasn't? that's of my generation seeing all the Disney movies and all the Harry Potters. And he uses so much cool symbology there, but he also is very left brain and very like uh, practical. Like his, his suggestions are clean your room, you know, make get your, your bed. Yeah. Make your bed, get your life, get your life together. Quit looking outside at all the problems and look in your own room. Look, look in your own life and all the problems that you're, it's totally again. And, and you know, Peterson, a great, lover of Jung too. It's very much if your shadows aren't ever examined, you're going to project them out and you're not going to get anywhere basically. Right. And so uh, just again and again, as you're bringing up Bly, I keep looking to Peterson, how thankful I am. This podcast is totally, I mean, it's for everybody, but it's very directly speaking to young men to me. If you're, if you're a young man and you feel lost, um, the way that I have felt and the way I still do feel in a lot of ways, but I feel so lucky to have found some direction. Um, uh, it, th this is speaking to you. It, you're not alone that, you know, you, you got, uh, you didn't, you weren't told the whole story in a way, but luckily there are assets out there that you can go and, and explore that can, that can touch that feeling of, as we were talking about that sorrow, that, um, that, that emptiness, that, that incompletion that you feel as a man in this world, um, it, there's so much value. We're so lucky to live in a time. So I, I have this, I have one, two notes written down that I, that I said I would bring up at some point in this podcast. Uh, please go to YouTube, type in Robert Bly. There's so much good stuff. Just this morning, I listened to about three hours of all this cool stuff. One was called uh, uh, On Being a Man. It was close to your, your, the name of your book, but the opposite, uh, on being a man. Uh, six part series, this was put out in 1989, happens to be the year I was born. Uh, and it's just freaking great. And another thing I was thinking, and I think we've gotten the point across, it's one thing to read Robert Bly's poetry, but you've got to see it performed. There, there's something about, uh, and I can only imagine seeing him live. I mean, you, you got a whole nother experience being in the room with the, what's it called, the zither? The, the, instrument, uh, the dulcimer, the dulcimer, the, the instrument he would play and the drumming and all that. But even it comes through in YouTube. It's, it's a total performance and it's a total appeal to the right brain, you know, and then it's so cool how he does the right brain, left brain thing of let me kind of throw this ethereal 
poetic thing out there and then instantly go, what do you think that means? <laughs> so, so it, I was thinking again, again, it took a very long time for him to come up, but he's bound to come up every episode of Paul in that way of throwing it over your head, right? It's not for, um, for the self to grab. It's not for the, for the left brain to grab something else. Yeah. It's getting past that. And Robert Bly very much in his performances was kind of throwing it over the rational brain in a way that it hits something deeper, you know, getting back to the soul and the depths. And right. then, and then the left brain can then go, okay, this speaks to me. I don't know why. Let me look at, and he offers all these um, examples of why it may be speaking to you. There's a good reason it's built into uh, our biology in a way. And something uh, that also came up for me that I think he said in your, your interview, um, if not, I heard it on one of the YouTube videos that when a man and his son were working by each other for the many, many generations up until the Industrial Revolution. He said there was something being communicated at a cellular level, which I thought was so cool and hit me so hard of like, you know, we talked about it the other day, the side-by-side um, the -side intimacy of, yes. two, of two men sitting side-by-side -side and while driving or while doing anything. And that, you know, a, a critique of that is, oh, you're afraid to look each other in the eyes and be vulnerable. But there's a certain kind of intimacy and even vulnerability in the side by side. And there is some value in that. I, and then I thought of after our phone conversation um, on this very podcast, Dream Talking, when I did it with uh, Paul in his backyard, we sat side by side and we were looking out at his backyard and uh, the trees and the birds and stuff going by. And you know, we were side by side talking, but it felt incredibly intimate, you know, in this very cool, it's just, it's putting um, language and, and a frame around this, these things that I had always felt that, you know, again, and this is the whole point of so many of these episodes in, in my podcast is uh, you're not the only one. Like it, it there is a, a, a sense of something that's missing for men in this generation, but you're not the only one. And there is, there are others and there is, there is help. <laughs> there is, you know, no one has the answer, but they have uh, uh, ways to point us maybe in the right direction so we can find answers for ourselves. Well, and, and Carl Jung had a definite, one of his definitions of a neurosis, of a neurotic. Neurotic is a, a problem is, is almost always understood to be a personal problem. You've got a neurotic situation. I've got this neurotic fixation with, obsession with, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the insights of, of Jung that took him beyond that context of Freud was very often a neurosis is an individual's attempt to solve a universal problem. Beautiful. That there is a problem at a universal level that is asking to be solved, a larger collective problem that uh, uh, it cannot be resolved at an individual level. So there is neurotic behavior. There is distortion. So this is what Bly was really hitting on when he said he was, you know, doing these conferences, these self-development conferences with young males at the Lama Foundation. I don't know if that even still exists, but, and that men would get into their, their sharings and they're just rivers of tears. This is un just un unformed, un unexpressed, but there was some emotion. And so what Bly and, and others have been about is, okay, what's going on with this? What, what does this express? What task is being done? Just as women in the 1960s with the women's movement, I mean, had a lot of tears, had a lot of emotion. No, you don't get credit 
Mrs. Johnson, your husband can get credit, or you can get credit if your husband signs the co-signs the application. I mean, really, second That's class. so heavy. Citizens. Yes, your second class citizen. So there were some women who said, oh, Robert Bly's coming along and comparing the suffering of men with the absence of their fathers to the suffering women face. No, this is never any comparison. This, is, this was a bad zero-sum game reading of yeah. what Bly was about. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. There's, you remember that one, there's one anecdote Bly told in the story. He said a woman came to one of his conferences, a single mom. Yes, this and is a boy uh, who's a teenage son lived with her and he'd been living with his dad and decided to come home and live with a mom again. But it turned out not to, do, to work out very well because the, in the household there was mom and three sisters and the brother and no father. So right there, there's just a, just energetically, there's going to be uh, an imbalance or a, just a particular kind of balance. And one day the mother said something to the son, cross or, you know, put the milk carton back in the refrigerator or stop drinking milk out of the carton and leaving one inch or whatever. The, and the son turned her and pushed her against the wall, an emphatic, visceral, body-based thing. And this is the woman speaking to Bly. And he said, what did you do? When that happened, she said, I said, well, it's time for you to go back to your father. And the boy said, you're right. Now, <clears throat> that sounds almost too good to be true. It's probably a summation of a larger transaction. But the summary was the mother, she said, and Bly said, the mother said, I didn't take it personally. I knew that it was nothing that I had done. But that he, a boy need, and the, apparently the kid was a big hulking teenage kid with all the unresolved. He needed to be out in the fields working or doing something mm -hmm. instead of a house with three sisters and a mom. Not because the sisters and the mom are providing a toxic environment. Oh, it's not but fair to either of them. Yeah, the alchemy was the alchemy was off. Well, so they got letters to the editor to New Age magazine after that was published. Robert Bly is now championing boys assaulting their mothers. See, that was a very limited, narrow reading. Uh, and the context of the piece, the mother said, I knew it wasn't personal. I didn't take yeah. it. She didn't, mother didn't say I was glad he pushed me. No, yeah. she didn't hurt her. Uh, she wasn't injured. And anyway, the point is the psyche was speaking. The body was, the psyche was speaking through the body right then. And the mother realized there's a universal problem here, meaning the system is off. Go live with your dad. And I don't know how the story turned out, but you kind of like maybe the kid went off to the army, which mm -hmm. could have been a very good solution or gone to the fields or anyway, not that dad was necessarily the solution, but at some point a boy at 17 or eight needs a dad, hopefully a dad who's up for doing, doing the work and not because mom has failed. Bly made it very clear in the interview and nothing I've ever written says men need initiation because women have failed their sons. No, yeah, men yeah. need initiation because women have, have succeeded with their sons as far as women can generally take a son, which is to the point for the second birth, what is often talked about in initiatories. The mother gives the first birth and a smart woman knows it's time for you to go live with your dad or you need to go to outward bound. A smart woman wants to put her son into challenges and her daughter. Don't get me wrong, but that's a different developmental path. A smart mom wants her son not to be tough and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but to, to find a set of resources and strengths that maybe she has, she's tried to impart. Maybe there's something beyond what she can do. Uh, and the son needs some, 
opportunities that are, and that's a smart mom. Oh, in yeah. fact, I would say- And a compassionate, and, and to, when you said not, that she didn't take it personally, that takes insane compassion and empathy to, to put herself in the shoes of a teenage boy. You know, how, how much more different can two people be than, you know, a, a middle-aged woman and a teenage boy? But to see that, again, she didn't fail. She did her job as a mother perfectly up to that point or could have done it perfectly up to that point. It wouldn't matter. There's something that a young man needs that can only be provided through that masculine interaction. And what Bly at one point in the interview says to me, he says, so I want to make it clear. I'm not saying women are doing something wrong. Yeah. I'm saying men, or I'm not saying women are not doing their job. I'm saying not enough men are doing theirs. Yes. So that was his point. He said, something's missing. Something's not being provided. It's not because women are failing. It's because there's certain things men must be doing for their sons that they're not doing. Now, again, this is over two decades ago. You see much greater um, you know, whether it's the father pushing the baby buggy at the park, the father playing with kids, you know, the, the father-mother roles are less circumscribed, circumscribed than they ever have been. But there is a greater emotional involvement today of fathers in the lives of their daughters and their sons, sons and daughters. And this isn't to say Robert Bly caused this. It's, um, but, but something happened. Bly gave expression to something that was already happening. If Bly had not come along and, and with his eccentric fairy, fairy, fairy story type approach to teaching with a dulcimer, uh, it, it was out there to be accomplished. James Hillman wrote about these kinds of things. Um, others in, in, the men's, in the men's movement, the, the men's movement, various men's movements, plural, yeah. uh, have been giving voice to this. And uh, I mean, if you go online now, look, fathers and sons, male initiation, uh, um, fathering, uh, it's, it's uh, rites of passage. There's a great, you can find many programs right now for rites of passage for young males. And Which is by the way, so, is a, so huge. And something that's important. so much missing. As important as it is for fathers to be engaged in their kids' lives, one thing Bly said is, don't, don't mistake this for thinking that a father can initiate his own son. Yeah. It is partly the fact that in a traditional culture, see, the father in a traditional culture, a primal culture, would be one of the initiators. When his son, see, here's what would happen. The boy, when it was time to be initiated, living in the hut with the mother, uh, while the fathers, you know, would go out in a very circumscribed way. The fathers were the hunters and the women were the gatherers. So when it was time for uh, Junior to become a man, yeah. he was, uh, the, the men would arrive at the hut. The men of the community, they'd be wearing masks. Yeah. They'd be have paint all over their face. And one of them was the father, but the boy didn't recognize his father. The father was joining the community of males that night and taking this boy away from his mother. Uh, violently, the boy, the boy's screaming and crying. The mother's in on it. She bye bye, bye bye. Yeah. I, so I, a version I heard him telling of this same story. He said, um, and then the 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 mothers were in on it. All the women were in on it. And then the women would meet the the men at a bridge, and then they put on a show like they were fighting to get him back. And they would yes, <laughs> which is that's all. And then after they'd lose, they all go and have coffee and go, oh, great performance, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and what would happen? The whole the theater men, of it. Yeah. The men would take the boys, uh, usually more than one, to a kiva, a hut underneath the ground, and uh, with a lot of singing and chanting. Oh, by the way, they would tell the boy, "You're going to die." 
Now, again, uh, this is psychologically uh, perhaps uh, not uh, sophisticated. Yeah, uh, could have induced, could have induced trauma. <laughs> but the point is, what is the larger mechanism that, that a culture was attempting to create for itself? A transition to manhood, to additional, to leave the mother's realm. And it's not to say that there has to be a harsh departure from the, the world of the mother. A healthy relationship with the mother can go out through life. But there is a certain task, a certain set of tasks that fathers, when they take the boys these days off to a camping trip, to a hunting trip, to a, a to the tr off the trip to Spain. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything traditional like hunting or uh, a camping. But time between fathers and sons and uh, church groups very often have this. I have to say, the Christian community, of which I'm not a part, yeah. but traditional Christian communities have a very good senses. And no, it's not to reinforce patriarchy. It's to understand that boys need their fathers, girls need their mothers, and Girls need their fathers and sons need their mothers too. Yes. But uh, most traditional cultures would, would, would not subscribe to the idea that boys and girls are equivalent. And, you know, before the law, sure, we should all be equal, but we are different. And the male psyche somehow does, and the female psyche, female psyches and male psyches, plural. I'm, I'm all for multiple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, one thing I developed in my book, the, the argument, there is no particular way to be a man. There are many masculinities. There are many ways to express manhood. It has, it has what's most important is to do it with consciousness, conscientiousness. Doesn't mean you go through a period of your life, what does it mean to be a man and a lot of fierce, although I have to say, a lot of the suffering of young women, young girls and young males is often, uh, because they're dealing with very complex stereotypes. You know, boys, you know, girls get stereotypes all the time, what a girl's supposed to be, and boys get stereotypes. And I know in my family, I did, I grew up with four brothers, and we had, you know, we had un unstated codes. We didn't cry. Nobody yeah. cried in my family, and it would be a sign of defeat if we cried. So again, uh, wrestling with these images can be a lifetime's work, and you don't have to go off into the woods with a Robert Bly figure to understand that these tasks are important, whatever whatever form they take. Yeah, absolutely. We've been kind of hinting at it, um, but I want to say it explicitly that, again, this this isn't like, uh, you know, a, as you said, Robert Bly didn't want to put women back in the Betty Crocker, you know, kitchen. He He said... This is all great progress to this point. And, and it's very, um, some of my listeners might know this phrase, transcend and include, right? The, the Ken Wilbur kind of statement that we, this is great progress, but there's more prog progress to be made. So keep the good stuff, you know, keep the being able to get in touch with yourself, keep the ability to uh, deeply understand women and, and your partner, but Take, take that and you got to take some of the, the, the good that you've discarded or you've ignored and bring both of that forward to transcend, you know, that certain level, but include the good stuff as, as you're moving forward. And I was thinking that when a man gets in touch with his masculinity and his femininity, everybody wins. <laughs> he wins, his daughters and sons win, and the women win. And if you want to get, you know, into gay relationships or, or uh, you know, um, uh, transgender stuff. Everybody's winning because we're getting more in touch with who we really are. We're not suppressing the shadow as much, you know? And so I just want to like explicitly say, this is not like a this versus that. This is a, how can we all 
win and move forward, you know, uh, as a culture and, and as a people. And I just, it, to me, it's so apparent that all of that is true, but, you know, apparently a lot of people can, can make it uh, divisive. And it, to me, it so isn't. To me, this is, this is there's a longing and a, and a hunger for something more and there's a reason for it. And when, if it's found, you know, if the, the man does um, scoop out the water and expose the wild man, and if he does, uh, you know, go get the key from under his, his mom's pillow and, and let him free, every, the mom and the women and everybody get a benefit from that. That is evolution. That is moving forward in such a way that speaks so true and deeply to me, you know? And that, that's what, why I think this, I, it's, it's the first time I'm ever going to quote my favorite podcaster, Pete Holmes, all the time. He goes, this is a free podcast. This is free. This is out there for the world. And this is such great information to, to be sharing, Keith. I can't thank you enough. Uh, you, I, I feel like I could have just sat back and listened the whole time because you're just on such a roll. You have so much to share. And it's, it's so dense with great stuff, man. I, 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 I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. And I, I will just second your, uh, if you're, if listeners are motivated, uh, just Robert Bly, B-L-Y, go out to YouTube, look for a set of interviews he did with, uh, you know, Bill Moyers has sat down with yeah. many of the great people. He said did a 20-part series with Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. Yeah. He also did a, a series with Robert Bly, sitting down with him in a more of an interview yeah. format. Uh, Bly right now is in his late, in mid-90s, unfortunately, is um, in the grips of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, he's in the long goodbye. I'm not in touch with him or his family at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so he's a, he's a memory of a, of a time that I shared with him. And he was a mentor for me. I mean, I, that's the other level of this, is that uh, he is someone who is not my father, who provided fathering in, the, in, a, in a broader sense of father. Yeah, that, yeah. that patronage, that, um, I'm, I'm tempted to use, he was patronizing, but patronizing always means sort of condescending. But yeah, yeah, no. he was a patron, yeah. or, I, or was I the patron? Was he, how does that work? In any case, <laughs> there was a mentoring quality just in this, um, uh, in the same sense that if a, you know, a young kid decides he wants to do um, uh, glass blowing and, you know, as a, as a, and he gets involved with a local glass, glass blower in town and doing kiln, that glass blower is probably gonna be a mentor for him, assuming he's a person of, of character yeah. and uh, a coach who assuming he doesn't have ulterior motives mm -hmm. uh, is typically a mentor for a young man. And so many of course abuse their, their roles, they abuse oh, their yeah. authorities and a priest can be a mentor and can also be a predator. Mm -hmm. So. It is not without, uh, these, these paths are not without risk, but if we don't take the risk to expose our kids to present, you know, maybe the some best way to say, you know, is the popular cliche from the 90s, it takes a village yeah. to raise a child. So in a village, there would be many adult males mm -hmm. who would interact and then adult females, and there would be a diversity of roles. So maybe the nuclear family thing has reinforced the sense of isolation. The father's off in the traditional model, father's off doing work. No one knows whether mom is at home and we all have our own separate house. Um, it's a hot house for all kinds of pathologies. Really, so yeah. um, there is a larger conversation happening now. And I, I think Robert Bly has been a big voice in that. Yeah, and, and I was just thinking as you were saying that, that um, you know, uh, 
mentors are so important. I, I, I need to get you and my good friend Elizabeth together uh, because she, she talks all the time. So she's 30 years in construction, working mostly around men as a lesbian woman um, who also is, a, is an author and a very deep thinker and, and very much into mythology and uh, uh, you know, archetypes and all that kind of stuff too. And she always says to me, she goes, what young people need, particularly young men, because that's who she spent most of her life around is men, uh, they need apprenticeship. And it's, it's so sad that our culture um, downplays that. You know? And we, we got into this over our phone conversation. When I was a kid, if you got into a job where you use your hands, you are a second-class citizen. Oh. Blue collar job is a second-class citizen. And you need to go to college and you need to get a real you know, respected job. And I complete, I fell into, I, I did construction work as a teenager. And I said, I'm going to go to school because I don't want to do construction work. And I ended up in a construction field. And all this Robert Bly stuff has been so healing to me, looking back over um, the last 10 years of my life, going, oh, like, again, giving it, you know, a little bit of a Paul twist to it. Something did for me that I couldn't do for myself in that. Uh, life gave me some initiation, some mail, some camaraderie that I had missed up to that point. And I, I would not, you know, nick the, the action figure. It was up to my personality. Um, I, I wouldn't have chose those things. I resisted those things. I had the idea that, you know, uh, um, toxic masculinity, it's, it's all bad. And, and it's so, I, that's why I would love for you to talk with Elizabeth because we, we, we talk about that, like, there's value in, in male camaraderie. Um, and again, and it, you know, she's a female and she joins in on it too. That isn't talked about in common culture. That like, oh. So I'll give you an example. Uh, me and my buddies that I do construction work with, and, and this is also very much in the comedian field too, which bleeds in a podcast. We say the most terrible fucked up things to each other. <laughs> the most like mean, like you would not, you couldn't imagine saying this to somebody, the most taboo, and we laugh about it. And there's, there's an intimacy in that, and no guy would ever agree with me on this, but I'm reporting from my own end. There's an intimacy in trusting. I can say, actually, you know what? Uh, Jordan Peterson talked about this. Uh, it, trusting that I'm gonna say, I'm gonna throw this out there. I know it's fucked up. I know it's hurtful, but I trust that you won't take it personally. And you'll, and you'll receive it as me actually being vulnerable and, hey, let's laugh about this together. You know what I mean? And, and this is all something I learned by trial and error. I was so, I, I could have so easily have shifted into growing up in Berkeley, California during the 90s and early 2000s. I so easily could have been that uh, easily offended, you know, um, holier than thou liberal leftist and and you know and i do consider myself liberal in a lot of ways but I, I i'm able to do so much more because life threw me into the deep end with with men manly men and tough hands work and getting cut and working long hours and being tired and then the the piece of having a family at a young age too just i see the value in it in a way that i think a lot of people a lot of men my generation don't and i'm kind of just reporting out there like yes it's not all good. There's fucked up parts, but there's so much value to it that just, I feel like so few people are talking about. And well, and also that. in that regard, uh, you brought up, uh, just by Brent mentioning the phrase toxic masculinity. Yeah. I have a real problem with that phrase. When, 
when it is thrown around indiscriminately and and it's used as if, well, we know what that reversed or well, no, we don't. Why don't we define what that is? And I'm probably going to agree with you uh, if we can if we can spell it out that what you're calling toxic masculinity might indeed be. I mean, you know, bullying of a certain kind that is clearly you no know, behavior of a kind that is clearly bullying. I don't mean bullying of a kind because there's there's no good bullying. Yeah. But there is so much now that is so routinely called bullying that yeah. is not necessarily so. There is roughhouse behavior that you're referring to on the work site. And it's often lines, very narrow lines. We don't often know. But there is a bet that we have made in our culture, and it's not to do with gender anymore. There's a bet that we've made that by empowering kids, to kids college students, to demand safe spaces, be able to go off to a room on the campus where there will be crayons and Play-Doh and stuffed animals. I'm not kidding. Sounds like a bad stereotype on Fox News. No, it's widespread. And some of the best critics of this are progressives. The best critics are liberal leftist critics. We are not using, we are not Jonathan Haidt and uh, the coddling of the American mind. Yeah. A very important book. Yeah. These are both authors are progressives, liberal. They're going to vote Democratic in the fall, yeah. and are in favor of equality, social justice. But demanding that a college professor give a quote trigger warning when historical information about the Holocaust is going to to be presented. And if the student, then the student is offended, or if there's an offensive, quote, offensive remark. See, I, I, we've, we've lost the language of what if we were to really prioritize being resilient, emotionally resilient. Yeah. Resilience, not uh, pretending you don't hear stuff that's bad. I'm not saying put your head in the sand, but resilience means, hey, you said something that proves you're an asshole, not that I'm an asshole. Yes. That's resilience. I, I heard what you just said. Sticks and stones may break my bone, but your words don't hurt me. They tell me more about you than I don't need a safe place. I am safe. I can hear what you said. Dude, and it so, doesn't faze me because it's not about me. What happened to that attitude? It's so common sense, but it's so critical for a long time. So two things came to me. One, uh, you were thinking of, of some people on the left that criticize the safe spaces. I thought of Bill Maher. Bill Maher uh, had an interview with, he's a congressman that has the patch over his eye, and he just wrote a book recently. He has, he's missing an eye from battle. So oh, yes, Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw. And he said this beautiful thing, and you know, he said in his book, that you should try not to offend, but you should try harder not to be offended. Oh. I think it's beautiful, right? Because, because giving people the benefit of the doubt, it opens up the world. So instead of fencing off all these safe places, we can meet each other. And Joe Rogan talks about this all the time and Jordan Peterson that I love in the arena of ideas and the best ideas will emerge. You know, if you have a fair playing ground, then bad ideas should be allowed to come into the arena and be shot down and be seen to be ridiculous. And yes, there's a small percentage of people that are going to fall for bad ideas, but you, ha- you can't shelter off. Um, you-, you can't create a, a uh, Marxist society where only certain ideas are allowed to be spoken and certain ideas aren't. It, I really am so much a, a believer in free speech and believe in people, have faith in people that the, the good ideas will rise to the top. You know, well, if they're all not, allowed to be. 
not yeah, I love that about uh, trying not to be uh, either offensive or not to either cause offense or to take offense. Yes, yes, try harder not to be offended. A lot of the younger voices on the right these days, uh, I agree with them when they say, oh, did you listen to the snowflakes? Oh, the poor little snowflakes. Yeah. And then I say, so, uh, and then, then, and then, I mean, in other words, snowflake is a, and I'm be careful what I'm saying. I mean, I want to be clear. Snowflake is an overly easily offended person who takes offense at too much. That's what the term refers to. I'm not saying that someone uh, who, I mean, when you, there, there are things to take offense at in this world. There are yeah, of situations of injustice and there's things to be that done are about acceptable. Them, yeah. I'm offended can be an appropriate, and then you take an action other than saying I need to go to a safe space. But what I would say to conservatives who point to, to um, snowflakes, when you look at their Twitter handle and their, uh, their, their own self-identity, their hobbies include triggering snowflakes. Really? <laughs> yeah. So you, get an, so you get strength and power out of being offensive mm -hmm. so that the, you can see people get offended so that you can mock them for being sensitive. Uh, let's mock the oversensitivity, but let's not make a uh, um, make it cool to be offensive, to, to go out of your way. Well, I, I want to say to sometimes to people, uh, yeah, I agree with you. That was a pretty snowflakey response. Person's overly sensitive. Why would you say that to her, though? Yeah. Why would you have said that? And you how know, is it productive? What, how are you? you know, productive it's not a win-win. Yeah. So there's, look, I, I'm for all, I believe the best antidote to bad speech is better speech. I'm pretty much yes. of a free speech absolutist. Uh, yes. Within proper limits, I know the courts have set that out, but um, I, um, I, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back, I'm almost never offended. I don't even really know the, the place. I find things in poor taste. I turn things off on television, but it's not with a strong sense of taking offense. I, I, and people say, I'm offended, or no, I, mean, I love when people say, that was an offensive thing you said. No, no, you took offense. Yes, but and your offense, maybe nine out of people would have taken offense. But the proof that it's not intrinsically offensive is that one out of 10 didn't take yes. offense. Didn't take offense. So let's stop declaring certain things intrinsically offensive, but let's also stop trying to be offensive to trigger I, those I people. It's yeah. <laughs> not a very good way to behave on either end of it. Absolutely. So you're, you're making me think again. I mentioned to you the, mentioned him to you the other day, and I don't, um, you said you'd maybe heard of him here and there. The best video by Sadhguru, who's a, he's a Hindu modern mystic dude out of uh, India. Uh, the best video I've ever seen by him, he talks about, and this is like, <laughs> you're like really touching me when you're, when you're going on your spiel. Uh, this is, if I could pass one thing down to my kids, you know, let's say that I, I know I'm going to die tomorrow and there's like, I got to distill it down to one lesson beyond the, I love you unconditionally and, and, you know, I'm so proud of you and all that stuff. Sadhguru has this video of um, where he basically says, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but he says, um, if somebody else can take away your well-being, someone else can take away your self-worth, your your sense of peace, your sense of contentment. Um, if, if someone can say something to you and do that, are you not a slave, right? It, it, you, as you were saying, if you can stand in your own sense of uh, what you know to be true, of what you, um, your own sense of confidence, this is getting back into the male stuff, then you are in a way um, invincible, you know, and, and to words, we'll say, you know, someone can come 
beat you up physically, but you're invincible. And there's no better gift, I don't think, that um, somebody can find than that, than to be able to go through life and go, it's a choice. You know, you, you, you come and you call me this, this, and that. You say that I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm stupid or I'm, or I'm worthless or this or that. It's a choice to accept it. I can let it land or I can see through it, see it as empty. And there really is, there's, there's no better lesson. And I try in my weird ways to slowly pass that message along to my kids too, that a, if, there's, if there's one great skill that I could launch you out into the world with, it's don't be a slave to other people's ideas, other people's words, find your own strength, you know? And so all that came up for me as you were talking. I had a, and it reminds me of, a, of a, about a year ago, it's been a while, I've had a back and forth with one of my brothers who had got mad at me for taking, seemingly taking a side in a family thing and, and uh, against his interests. He's, he tends to be permanently beleaguered and, uh, left out it's kind of a racket in my view that's he's always left out and maybe there's what's your role in that yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but in any case we i i extended i said so i apparently i apparently have said this or what i said left you feeling this way and i'm you know it was not my intention so i i re and it's true i wasn't trying to make make it nice but he came back said well thank you he said you just trigger me sometimes and i was very tempted to say no I don't. You get triggered. Yes. Because <laughs> no matter what I do, I don't, but I, you know, I didn't do that. Yeah. And it's not because I was virtue, but I thought, Keith, you know, this is not a time to correct his language. He's trying to say that, that, that he gets triggered. Okay. Yeah. But he put it as, well, you, you, uh, thanks, Keith, but you, you know, you trigger me sometimes. Mm, probably not. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Like anyway, you said, it, it won't be heard, but, but, if someone's open to it, what a great shift. What a great put in the cart in front of the horse example of just going like, no, the input is going to be whatever the input is. I choose the output, you know, and, and that's freedom, you know, yeah. in my view. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> I think so too. It's a great conversation as usual. What a beautiful podcast, Keith. Thank you. Um, you are an absolute loved favorite of dream talking and beyond. <laughs> And uh, hey, go out there and find uh, on being a man, or to be a man. I messed it up again. <laughs> to be a man. To be a man, Keith Thompson. Is, if anybody wants it, it's a, it, you can find it uh, until there aren't any more, but there are used bookshops, and even Amazon. I, I check every now. In fact, I bought some a few years ago because I was still giving them out to people who said, hey, where's your book? I can't find it. So um, you can find copies of To Be a Man. And, and the interview with Bly, totally free. Yeah, it's a document in and of itself. And look, you can read, you can disagree with. I'm not saying Bly is right on everything. He's a provocative, he's a provocative thinker, and he will provoke. If you read the interview and uh, and it provokes, that's that's what what, that's it got you thinking. Great. All right, Keith. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time.